1: Granger, for the ones who get it done.
0: It must have been an incredible moment at the Constitutional Convention. The delegates prepared for the final day to sign the document that was to be the nation's Constitution, freshly inked on parchment. They had been working on it for months and throughout all the divisive debates, no matter how contentious. George Washington, the hero of the Revolution, the man who had given up his generalship and now presided over the Constitutional Convention, Sat quiet. He uttered no opinions about what should be in the document. Now, on this final day of the convention's meeting, Massachusetts delegate Nathaniel Gorman, a Boston merchant, asked if they could open up the debate just to consider one little adjustment to the document. The new Congress was to contain one congressional member, one representative for every 40,000 Americans. Gorman felt that this should be reduced to lessen the objection to the Constitution. One could imagine a sigh passing through the room as the delegates ready to go home. Here again, a matter that had already been dealt with, that Gorman had already raised, and might trigger an opening of several points in the Constitution before they could just sign it and go home and start to pitch the Constitution to their worried states. What was he thinking? But then at this moment, to everyone's surprise... George Washington himself, who had sat silent for months, rose to speak. The smallness of the representatives offers insufficient security for the rights and privileges of the people. He would like to add his support to Gorman's motion. Breaking months of silence, Washington's request was dealt with immediately. No one dared object. Though the matter had been settled at 40,000, the Constitution was now smudged and 30,000 inserted one representative for every 30,000 people, Washington may have had any number of motives for doing what he did. Some scholars suggest he needed to get something on the record so it could not be said that he, Washington, had nothing to do with the Constitution. Others think it was an attempt to release some of the bad feelings that had occurred with all the debates, several delegates walking out of the room, George Mason and Luther who felt that the Congress didn't really represent people enough. Maybe, maybe he could chill some of that anger. It's also possible that the hero of the revolution and the country's best political actor wanted to be the last word. Or it could be a combination of all three of those things. Still, that Washington would choose this. And only this issue, representation to speak on, reveals how important representation in Congress was to the founding of the American government. The subject of representation is a large one, so said Richard Henry Lee. He wasn't kidding. It seems simple, but you start pulling layers and it gets more and more complicated. On one level, representation in a democracy seems easy. We need more of it. Can't get enough of it. Government must represent people. No taxation without representation. We remember that. One of the early slogans of rebellious Americans against the crown. Acts of Parliament had said that the colonies were subservient to Parliament in any, all cases, whatsoever. A very brash and condescending way to handle their subjects. Obviously, the new American government had to do better than the British one. That's probably the best way to understand American representation. The American example had to be better than the British. Britain was not so good. Indeed, had the British had more representation in their government, their government might have acted differently on the American question, on the Stamp Act and the Intolerable Acts. Popular support for the American cause was greater on the island of Britain than in the representation of Parliament. But at the time of the American Revolution... British Parliament wasn't representative of the people in all. It wasn't soaking up the opinions of the country. The largest borough with a single member of Parliament, Westminster, had approximately 12,000 voters, while there were other rotten boroughs all around the country that had fewer than 100. Dunwich, the constituency there, had 30 people living in it. Old Sarum had 12. Gatton had 7. Worse still, whole areas such as Birmingham and Manchester, manufacturing towns with thousands of people, had no seats in Parliament. All the while, an island that had long fallen into the sea retained its constituency. These rotten boroughs, as you can imagine, could often be corrupt. Eighty-one voters in New Shoreham, who constituted a majority of the electorate, formed an organization, they call itself the Christian Club and regularly sold the borough's vote to the highest bidder. It would take until 1831, when Andrew Jackson was president in America, to do any reform bill at all in England. And that, In that one, it was just a small correction. 60 of those small, rotten boroughs were eliminated. It was really after the American Civil War that the British Parliament was reformed. And then a second bill in 1884, which eliminated boroughs under 15,000 from having their own representation. Americans certainly then did better, faster than Englishmen in representation in their government. But representation? It didn't even matter so much in British philosophy. The parliament was not created from scratch to make the people happy, like the American government. The parliament was created to raise money for the king to provide enough appearance of consent so that subjects could be taxed. So this idea of representation didn't matter so much. One Speaker of the House of Commons, Onslow, said, Every member of Parliament is equally a representative of the whole, within which by our particular Constitution is included a representative, not only of those who are electors, but all of the other subjects of the Crown of Great Britain, and in every part of the British Empire. Virtual representation, this concept is called. In other words, don't worry about me representing you in your area. We're all up here, your government representing you. If that was the case, then a British subject in Massachusetts Bay or Virginia was represented in Parliament just as much as he were living in London. Even though he didn't vote for his member, Blackstone, British legal scholar writing in 1765, took the same view. Every member he held... Though chosen by one particular district, when elected and returned, serves for the whole realm. Easy for scholars to say, but not something Americans would like today. They want to vote, and they want their representative to represent a single area. But in the British view, this was different. MP and writer Edmund Burke said directly to his constituents' faces that he would do what was right and not what was good for them. When elected by the town of Bristol, he told a crowd there famously, Parliament is a deliberative assembly of one nation, with one interest, that of the whole, where not local purposes, not local prejudices ought to guide, but the general good. You have chosen a member, himself, but indeed, he is not a member of Bristol, he is a member of Parliament. So give Burke some credit. It's a pretty strong thing to say to people who just elected you. Fairly courageous. And the stance worked for a while for Edmund Burke. But after voting for free trade with Ireland and Catholic emancipation not popular in Bristol, his voters turned him out. Americans had to do better than the outdated concepts of British virtual representation and dead districts. And while they couldn't have an Athenian democracy with everyone voting or a New England town-style meeting for the federal government's deliberation. Many colonial leaders had these inspirations. They had read about Athens, and some of them lived in New England towns, where that was the style of governance. And it was well known that they had to live up to these kind of examples. Representation was the cure. Here it is in our declaration, clearly citing one of the faults of George III for imposing taxes on us without our consent. With these eight words, Thomas Jefferson made tax protests, an integral part of the Declaration of Independence. No taxation without representation. One of the key crimes of King and Parliament. And prior to the Declaration, a part of many pamphlets and statements of the Stamp Act Congress. No taxation without representation. Americans took issue with English virtual representation ideas. In one pamphlet, Englishmen were described as perfect strangers to Americans who could levy taxes on their citizens with no burden to their constituents and no risk that they would be voted out of office. And it even got worse. Richard Henry Lee noted that English property is exonerated from taxes because American property is taxed. There was a perverse incentive then for people who aren't represented to be taxed. One of the last things the Americans wanted, though, was a true solution to this. A seat or two in Parliament or even several. Benjamin Franklin had thrown out this idea, the so-called Scottish solution. Add a few members for America to Parliament. Franklin would certainly want to be one of them. As the Scots had done, had they had obtained it when they entered union with England in 1707. That wouldn't do for most Americans. Adding even a hundred seats to a chamber of 558 members dominated by mainland interests and rotten boroughs would not do much. American independence of government was a real goal and when it was earned, America had to show that it could do better. But how? John Adams suggested that the Congress should be an exact portrait in miniature of the people at large. A portrait in miniature. That seems easy enough, right? We can't have the whole United States meet in one place, can we? Madison, for instance, said that Congress should be the most exact transcript of society. You get the point of all this, but it it presents a host of questions. How do you make this portrait in miniature or this transcript of society? If you've got 13 states, do you have 13 representatives? Or do you have three representatives from each state? Do you represent pockets of population, like cities and towns? Do people of wealth who will pay more in taxes, will they get more representation? These are the various dimensions of representation. American states did some things differently right off the bat. They insisted that members live in the districts they represent. When new towns were formed, they quickly gave them representation, or they didn't tax them in many cases if they didn't have representation in the state legislature yet. New Jersey, Pennsylvania, New York, and South Carolina had specific constitutional requirements to change representation as population changed, a concept that followed smoothly into the United States federal constitution. Delaware and Massachusetts had specific language in their constitution that legislation was a right of the people. It's a people's right temporarily placed in representatives. So the American view of representation is reflected in the comments of signer and Maryland radical Samuel Chase, who said that the people's power is like the light of the sun. The powers of rulers and governors is like that of the moon, reflected, borrowed, limited. For many, the federal constitution, while an attempt to rein in state governments, was a miracle of improvement, especially over the British system. Representation flew through the veins of the government. Every officer was a servant of the people, noted James Wilson. The government is trebly represented by the people, John Dickinson noted. Presidents elected, houses elected, Senate elected, leased by the state legislatures who they themselves are most often directly elected. All this representation. But this is where scale of representation can come into play because they are right and they could be considered wrong. If the only goal of the Constitutional Convention of 1787 was to improve representation, they could have found an easy solution. States already had legislatures, and you've already carved out most of those states into districts. States were very familiar with new pockets of population in their states and where you needed new districts. The states decided that those districts represented adequate proportions of their people. If the Constitutional Convention framers, meeting in 1787, wanted to find a model of how many representatives the society should have, They could just use the state legislature districts already drawn. But there were hundreds, probably at least a thousand state assembly members in America in 1787. If we then had that level of national representation in the federal government, there might be thousands of congressmen. After all, a state can have 75 to 100 assembly legislators each. States decided that the people deserve this level of representation on states' issues. This is actually a point that the key framers considered and decided that the national issues would not be as common to as many people. Plus, the key people in the convention were not as enamored of those states' legislatures. Many of them had come from experience in them. While they gave them certain functions in the federal government, like, at the time, appointing senators, ratifying constitutional amendments, they bypassed state legislatures in other ways, creating new bodies, like the Electoral College, the ratification conventions for the Constitution. They could have used state legislatures for these purposes and decided not to. James Wilson, James Madison, George Mason felt districts larger than the state legislative districts would produce a superior class of individual lawmakers to sit in the national government. Governor Morris complained that in state legislatures, the best people were lost. People had voted for men who would agree to vote for new towns, new counties, new memorials. They were constantly, Governor Morris said, mistaking their private circles for a general society when voting. Some debates that we have today about Congress being representative were had back in these days. Federal speakers at the Massachusetts Ratifying Convention had complained, why speak of Congress as this foreign entity that's trying to slave us? They will be the representatives of the people. This was under attack, though, from anti-federalists who used the argument of scale of representation. Yes, but they argued, if only a half dozen congressmen are selected to represent a large state in a federal government, would persons be from the great body of the people? This house of representatives will be made up of the wealthy. Whether or not that's the case is still a debate that goes on today. Another debate is the one that Edmund Burke and others forced the issue on. Should a congressperson in America do what's right, as a member of parliament was instructed to do back then, or should they do what's popular? In the Federalist Paper Number 10, James Madison strongly suggests that the representative form of government established by the Constitution would best be served by trustees, not delegates. A Republican form of government, he argued, has the capacity to refine and enlarge the public views by passing them through the medium of a chosen body of citizens whose wisdom may best discern the true interest of their country and whose patriotism and love of justice will be least likely to sacrifice it to temporary or partial considerations. That's Madison's view. But in my view, the Federalist Papers are nothing more than one interpretation of government. It's sometimes used as the only interpretation. But it was one, in that points, it was controversial back then. And controversial now, for today, for instance. We would view Madison's view very suspiciously. If I'm in a district where 55% of the people support spending on highways, I don't want my congressman telling me he knows better and voting against it because he doesn't want to spend too much money. If I'm for the ownership of guns, I don't want my congressman saying that he knows better because he has wisdom in voting for gun control. These are the type of large issues that couldn't be settled in one Federalist paper, one broadsheet. Are members of Congress trustees then, people with wisdom, are they just ambassadors of the people? It was a question that emerged in Maryland, when on a paper money bill, the Maryland Senate vetoed the Maryland Assembly. This was before the creation of the federal constitution. And the assembly, led by declaration signers Samuel Chase and William Paca, asked the people of Maryland to send instructions to their senators. Not petitions, instructions. The people, Samuel Chase said, were, after all, the trustees to the power. The Senate and the assembly, well, they just held commissions to use that power. And they had to yield to popular will if it was ever directly expressed. Literally, the Marin Assembly went as far to say, when there's a division between the two branches, us and the Senate, the people break the tie. So let your representatives know your instructions. He knew full well that they would instruct the senators to go along with the Assembly because paper money bills were popular at the time. The Senate, confronted with instructions from all over Maryland now, answered the call. Another signer, Thomas Stone, signer of the Declaration, spoke for the Senate of Maryland. But he had to be careful and not to appear so aristocratic. Everyone who's a representative, senator, or assemblyman is only doing so with the consent of the governor. He acknowledged that. We'd be objects to be confined for insanity if we didn't listen to our subjects, he said. But then he warned that decisions by force of numbers alone would eliminate the consideration that the state of Maryland's Constitution gave to the Senate. The people can only express their will through periodic voting. And once they do, they must follow their laws. It's a question the Constitutional Convention grappled with. Should they just transmit the concerns of citizens in their district, perhaps take polls to see what position the congressman should have? Or should they exercise their own judgment? Well, nothing in the Constitution can answer the question. There are two mathematical factors that are clues to what the framers might have been thinking. The framers first set two-year terms and secondly made districts that were larger than those state legislative districts we talked about.
1: This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24 seven customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
0: This has two different effects. On one hand, By making these large congressional districts, they wanted people of stature, people who could have enough fame, importance, consideration, hopefully competence, to win in a large district of a state. On the other hand, if they got too full of themselves, they could be thrown out every two years. In a sense, they expected the House to bring the concerns of the people, to be more of the miniature of the people in portrait, and for the Senate, with statewide considerations in six-year terms, to handle deliberation. Some of that still holds today, The Senate is certainly more of a deliberative body. The Constitution, even without the improvement by Washington, now setting the appointment at one per 30,000, provided a Congress of about 65 persons. But this was to represent a country that spanned the length of the East Coast. The Congress grew, however, as new states were added. As it did, the idea of representative democracy flourished. No time delay was allowed for these new states, new places, to get new representatives in Congress. Residents of Kentucky and Ohio, even if they were from Virginia and Connecticut and had moved there, were given representatives from the new states as soon as possible. For Jefferson, the American creation of representative democracy rendered useless almost anything else written before on the structure of government. Americans in history tolerated fast growth of Congress. From 1793, Congress was 105 members. In 1876, it grew to nearly 400 members. At the turn of the century, this tolerance was giving way. A problem resulted. Members had no office space, no place to conduct meetings. New buildings were constructed, but they would soon be outgrown by a growing Congress. This is the functional dimension of representation we need to talk about. What does that mean, functional dimension? Well, sure, it's all well and good to have everyone have a representative. But the body has to meet and has to deliberate. Madison was not a fan of large congresses, for instance. In all numerous assemblies, Madison said, passion is above reason. Had every Athenian citizen been a Socrates, every Athenian assembly would still have been a mob. So in 1911, a law was passed fixing the membership at 435 persons. Each state got at least one representative, and the rest is divided up according to population. Thus, a path was set, a different point in American history, one where representation started to collapse instead of flourish. On average today, every 700,000 Americans are represented by a single person. A U.S. House member can have anywhere from 480,000 constituents to 1 million constituents in their district. It's a fairly wide variance. Added to this mix is that the United States government already has a bicameral government with a Senate, which gives no consideration to representation by population, only representation by state, initially to help defend small states like Rhode Island, Connecticut, Delaware, and New Jersey. Two senators have been granted to 37 additional states, not part of the original convention, none of whom were part of that original debate about small and big and the compromise. Sometimes, the growth of the Senate through new states have been abused. The addition of Nevada, South Dakota, North Dakota were at different times intended to aid Republican voting majorities in the Senate. Conversely, talk of D.C. as a state has gone nowhere, mostly because it would create two likely Democratic senators. There's been no serious effort for any new states, for any new senators beyond the 100 that we have now since the 1950s. Now, we must say this. Though a model of representation in one area, Americans got it sadly wrong. For a long time in American history, a class of citizens was included in apportionment, but not in representation. An arbitrary three-fifths rule counted three-fifths of the black population in apportionment, giving southern states more electoral votes and more House members than the people who were free to vote for them. This was the one manifestation of a representation of wealth, a representation of property that was brought up at the time of the convention. Southerners insisted on it as their price for joining and staying in the Union. And Northerners didn't put up much of a fight. A couple of delegates argued that it was wrong, but it was dropped, and the three-fifths rule was supported in the Constitutional Convention. Indeed, it was a compromise. Southerners wanted all, all of their slave population to count in apportionment. And while Britain improved its representation through the 19th century and no longer had any old sorums, while the federal U.S. government eliminated the rotten borough, not all state governments did. As of 1960, in the United States, the following still occurred, not very representative. In the Connecticut General Assembly, one House district had 191 people, another 81,000 kind of a rotten borough there, in the New Hampshire General Court, their word for an assembly. One township had three people, and they had a representative in the lower house. This is the same representation given to a district with a population of 3,200. Utah had a small district with 165 people and a large district in Salt Lake City with 32,380. Vermont had one with 36 people, the largest with 35,000 people. Los Angeles County had 6 million people, one member, in the California State Senate. In a rural county, 14,000 people were represented by a senator. That's 428 times more representation. This is another dimension of representation we already talked about, scale. How many people represent how many? And on this narrow point, the Supreme Court entered in. With this seminal decision, a Baker versus Carr. In Baker, the Supreme Court was asked to review the malapportionment of Tennessee state legislative districts under an apportionment statute that operated untouched for some 60 years. Then in Westbury-Sanders, the court established the one-person-one-vote standard, holding that the Equal Protection Clause mandated that as nearly as is practical, one man's vote in a congressional election is worth as much as another. Chief Justice of the United States Earl Warren said, People must be represented, not acres, not trees. Not everyone agreed with that. The forces of our national life are not brought to bear on public questions solely in proportion to the weight of numbers. So said Senator Everett Dirksen of Illinois, who led a fight to pass a constitutional amendment allowing states to have unequal legislative districts. If they were, the 6 million citizens of Chicago would hold sway in the Illinois legislature. This is where Dirksen was from. Without consideration of the problems of their 4 million fellows who were scattered in 100 other counties. None of these problems have been solved. In the U.S. Congress, districts drawn by gerrymandering can increase the influence of cities. But more likely, it's the opposite of what Dirksen was arguing. They decrease it. Shape shifting is used instead of rotten burrowing in the United States. Instead of districts like Old Sarum with no people, there are districts with the sufficient amount of people that Earl Warren couldn't argue with. But they're odd shape. They're stringing together many different towns to ward off votes. For instance, the North Carolina 12 is a snake. Its head encompasses Charlotte, and the body slides up in a thin line that goes to Winston-Salem, the famous rabbit-on-a-skateboard-shaped district of the Illinois 17th, designed to tie Springfield and Rock Island together an attempt to get a Democratic seat out of western Illinois. Didn't work. There's a Republican serving there, but it did provide citizens arguably with a congressperson that doesn't know their local interests because they have no local common interests. One of those gerrymandered districts, the North Carolina one, was designed by Republicans, the other by Democrats. Both parties engage in it, especially with today's computers and map-making software. Some people with very undemocratic intentions can live within Earl Warren's rules and still group a lot of people into district shapes that bear no relation to each other. Given all these considerations, is America well represented today? Do we have a concept of a portrait in miniature, the United States as a whole, that John Adams hoped for? Or is our system of congressional representation, as George Mason complained, not a shadow of representation? When a congressman is representing not a group of villages with common interests, but a snaking part of a state? It's hard to answer yes. That's not the only problem. When George Mason made that complaint, there were 2.3 million Americans and 65 members in the House. So about 29 congressmen for every million American people. Today we have 435 congresspeople for 317 million. About 1.4 congressmen per million people. where the early Americans had 29. Even given that we were a little closer and we have fast-moving cars to go to that congressman's office... And now we can send email and faxes to them we couldn't do in those days. That is an appalling drop in the amount of representation we get. Perhaps it's an explanation for the lack of participation in American elections, particularly the lack of participation in midterm votes, in writing letters to congresspeople, in all of the areas of participation in democracy. Perhaps it's an explanation for the normally low poll ratings of Congress. We don't feel represented by people who also represent a half million others or more. But maybe this is just normal. Well, another way to look at what's going on in the United States with representation is to look at other countries to determine that. Their ratio of people to representatives. The portrait in miniature. Russians have a Duma representative for every 300,000 people. Australians have a representative for every 153,000 people. Turks have a grand assembly member for every 136,000 people. Canada has a riding with an MP for every 113,000 Canadians. The United States is at 700,000. One member for every 700,000. America's previous owner has come a long way since the day of the Stamp Act. In the UK, 650 House of Commons members exist. For 63 million people in the nation. One of the West's strongest ratios of representation at about a member of parliament for every 96,000 people. That is so far from U.S. representation that it's hard to even think about it. If we adopted the United Kingdom system, Rhode Island would get 10 House members instead of the two that it has. Wyoming would get five where it now has one. People in the United Kingdom, their most apathetic election, which was 2001, 2001, had a voting rate of fifty-nine point one percent, about the highest that American hoped for, even in its presidential elections. The twenty ten UK election had a sixty-five percent voter turnout. In America, just forty-two percent showed up in the twenty ten midterm, and that was a slight increase of one percent over the two thousand six midterm. The U.S. has one of the worst ratios of people to representatives in its federal policy body making of any nation in the world. Maybe that partially explains the voting trend. Your chance of getting to see your representative if you live in Sydney, Toronto, or London is far greater than the average American stands now. To be fair, however, there's another consideration here. In the United Kingdom or in Canada, one does not get to elect a president nor their prime minister. The prime minister is elected by the party that has the most seats in parliament. And this is the person in control of the executive function of the government. But this is kind of an interpreting point and a novel one. Because seeing the president as a representative of the people, the members of the Constitutional Convention, for the most part, did not see it that way. It's a fairly new concept in American politics. The presidency was an office of execution, not a people's champion. Every vote on a popular election failed in the Constitutional Convention, and the Electoral College was created to filter the popular voice through that system. It was Andrew Jackson that introduced the concept of a mandate from the people in his presidential election when he assumed the presidency. He could fire his treasury secretary, he noted, because he, and not the secretary, had a popular referendum behind him. James Polk perfected it. He said that when he vetoed a bill, he, just like the Congress, had a popular mandate. Woodrow Wilson improved on that. His mandate, he said, was larger because he was elected by all the people, not just a little district. Them fighting words constitutionally. But it's caused the change. Most people see that now presidents do represent all the people. But it really doesn't hold up to some questioning here. How can one person represent anything? At best, a president coming into office might represent the issues and concerns expressed by a majority of people during one election year when they got elected, and the election probably covered a lot of issues, some of that mandate might last for the first few months of their presidency, then forgotten. They cannot be considered a day-to-day representative of the people. So given that, if you eliminate this side benefit I've talked about that makes America appear to be more representative than other governments because we elect our leader, the side benefit of the president is additional voice of the people, Or if you at least confine it to a once every four or eight year fluke where there's a little bit of a mandate right after the election. Then we have to go back to the heart of the problem, get under the hood of the House of Representatives, America's lower house. Framers wanted to be the voice of the people, not keeping up with population growth. I'll talk a bit about the enlargement of Congress. I think it may increase the connection that Americans feel to their government and bring us closer to the ideal of miniature in portrait that John Adams talked about. But what about the concerns that if we enlarge the Congress, that it would make Congress unwieldy, a mob? And how would we do this enlargement? Well, to get the level of representation that we have, that one has in the UK, the House of Representatives would have to extend to about 3,000 people. That's probably impossible. But you could add 200 members, you could add 500 members. You could have 1,000 members of Congress. What about the concerns that this would make Congress unwieldy, a mob? Congress has already organized itself into committees to do the important work. The Rules Committee has control of the way votes will be conducted. Congress can make further rules to better organize itself if more people are added. Technology would allow for better handling of votes than in Madison's day, better distribution of information. D.C. office mates might get a little hard to come by with, say, 200 or 500 more congressmen, but that's a minor problem. Building materials are better now than they were back then. Minor problem compared to the lack of representation in federal government for all of the people. Other areas of federal government, especially the executive branch, has increased Many times fold since 1911. But the percentage of representation is not. You could also say that Congress could stay in its districts and come to D.C. only for several meetings a year and vote through technology, so to stay in the field. What's more important, the national government in one place or constant in-touchness with constituents? Indeed, embedded in the name Congress is usually a group that comes from somewhere and meets in a place for a time. The people in a Congress are supposed to retain their regional identity, where they're from. The size of the House is even a larger problem than it was in 1911. At that time, the federal government received its revenue from taxes on import, and taxes on whiskey and other fees. Now an income tax is assessed to all working citizens, or those collecting a government payment. Like it or not, the federal government handles a lot more of the Americans' average life than it did in Madison's day or in 1911. But yet, we don't have the ratio of apportionment that even in 1787 was unacceptable to some. When important matters such as income taxes, Social Security, Homeland Security, FEMA, add to that school and student loans, things not dreamed of by Madison or the other framers, when they emanate from the national government that they created... People having more of a voice makes sense. And yet we've declined in representation. Every poll reveals Americans distrust their national politicians. It may be that one rep for every half a million to three-quarters of a million people doesn't feel like a representative. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Here's what political commentator Larry Sabato said about the idea of expanding the House of Representatives. House expansion would bridge the divide between representatives and constituents. Smaller districts could be more closely corresponded with community boundaries and media markets. This would provide representation for local concerns and revive long-forgotten traditions of door-to-door retail campaigning. Challengers would need far less money to make their stand, relying on foot power more than a green machine fueled by barrels of cash. With candidates making their cases individually to more voters, incumbency would matter somewhat less, and upsets... Would probably be more common. Diverse ethnic and racial minorities, beyond African Americans and Hispanics, would be able to win some representation. So says Larry Sabato. Well, it's hard to know what that magic number is, and we probably can't implement a three thousand member Congress to get us where the United Kingdom and Canada are. We probably can't do that immediately anyway. We could improve the ratio. The number set in nineteen eleven is arbitrary and could be improved. About 200 more Congress people, perhaps over time, would get us to two representatives per million, at least, on average. What does one per 500,000 mean? Well, it's not perfect, but it improves. In some states, say New York or Connecticut, that might mean 10 or 20 tightly packed towns get a House member. In rural states, you'd still be talking about several counties, but less counties than before. Greatly enhances regional representation, reduces the shapes that gerrymanders could pull from. Right, I mean, you're still going to tie together towns of like voters unless we are able to change that system, and we'll talk about that in a bit. But at least you're cutting the size of the snake, and if you went to, say, a thousand House members, you're cutting that snake even farther. There's only so far you're going to get tying towns together where the areas won't be as different anymore. So it enhances regional representation, reduces shape-shifting. It might not solve every problem in America would increase the chance that you would see your congressperson. That level of representation, you might be seeing them at your child's birthday party. Let us address two points about the concept of representation that seems easy, but is actually pretty challenging. One is identity and the representation of identity. Depending on how we define ourselves, we may or may not be represented. Women, for instance, make up about half the U.S. population, far more of the voters, but Despite the fact that a woman has been Speaker of the House, women are a fraction of Congress. So, are women represented from a straight demographic point of view? From a women's advocacy point of view? The answer is no. The women in government in America have never represented women in the population at large. But identity is multidimensional. Let's take this example a woman that identifies herself most strongly as a Republican, and who chooses a male candidate who is a Republican over a female candidate running for office who is a Democrat. That is the woman's choice. That woman would feel more represented in this case because the male candidate, she wanted won, even though the female candidate lost. She identifies herself most strongly as a Republican in this scenario. But that doesn't mean she's totally satisfied by the system. Overall, there is some lack of representation for the second dimension of her identity, or at least there could be, that of being a woman. Overall, she may feel like, I like my congressperson personally. But there aren't enough women in Congress in general, and they don't always address my issue. Identity representation is something that is hard for representational political systems to truly provide for. There's been a question throughout American history in representing various minority groups by race. It's a very difficult question where, for instance, two or three racial groups dominate an area in the same geographic location. Who gets to represent? Hispanics, for instance, routinely complain they get less representation for their population because many Hispanics live in neighborhoods where the black population is just slightly higher. A solution for that in various systems, including ours, has been the gerrymandered districts to provide representation to black and Hispanic voters to create, in a sense, black and Hispanic congressional districts. It's an acknowledgment, without saying it, that geography is not the only determinant of Representation. You just don't need representation, perhaps, as a resident of a geographic area. Say, I'm from Chicago, I need another representative of Chicago. You have other needs, like, I need there to be more women in Congress, I need there to be more Hispanics in Congress to represent me. We have other needs as a society. And it's a question for representation. Then, if we open it up for race, if we open it up for gender, do we open it up for other things? Do we get back to the property question that was brought up in the Constitutional Convention? That is, should there have been another branch of Congress to represent property. Oh, it seems so elitist now, but rich people pay more taxes. They have a higher stake in the game. The government can move in and squelch their business. They have more to lose from that government. Shouldn't they have a body of government to represent their larger interests? Conversely, you could ask the question, should poor people who have less or no property, who need more from government, should they get more representation? Should there be a branch of government to represent children who cannot vote? Fixing identity representation is a difficult problem. Not an easy thing to fix. Because it's hard to say who represents an African American libertarian. That's not going to generally happen from African American congressional district seats. Most often, not always, they'll go to members of the Democratic Party. It might happen, though, if you create more seats, you have smaller districts. All of these ideas sound crazy, and I think it leads one to conclude that fixing those difficult problems is hard. The best system, the only thing that would work, is to increase representation in general, to increase the chances that more people, more types of people, more places score a representative. What could 1,100 members of Congress do for you? 1,000 in the House, 100 in the Senate? Very little if other things don't happen. One is that the sense of Americans need to change. So if we had an enlarged House of Representatives, that enlargement needs to be a big deal. It should convince Americans that this, the House, is the representative body as it was originally intended. The Senate, which is not going to be representative unless that's changed i'm mean, not right now going to argue that it might be something that could be done in the future but the senate needs to be seen as quasi-representative they're elected but the contrast is 100 senators versus 435 house members i personally don't think the contrast is enough to make the point point. and the more you enlarge the house of representatives the more it is clear that the Senate is only quasi-representative, represents states, and it's a deliberative body. It's a substitute for a vote for property. It's a substitute for a vote for the rights of states that entered the Constitutional Convention and is still something that comes up today. It's a way of slowing down the popular will if it's going too fast. It's a deliberative body. It should be seen that way. It should have less moral force in the House of Representatives. And I think a contrast between 100 members and 1,000 members makes that clearer than just having 300 extra members. Enlarging Congress would also have to be matched by an increase in the federal budget to accommodate new representatives, offices, staff, the like. Increases right now are unpopular and an increase to deliver, you know, and may increase the deficit. Um, No one wants to do that. But an increase to deliver more representation should be an easier thing to argue for than any new gadget, new warship, new subsidy, the like. Enlarging Congress would have to be matched by a reduction in gerrymandering to be ultimately successful in creating more real representation. I think the enlargement alone would reduce gerrymandering, but I also know that politicians and state legislatures are quite clever and almost always gerrymandered. There's a solution. California and Iowa have had success with their programs, using commissions to decide where districts will go instead of having the politicized state legislature do it. Richard Henry Lee said that representation is a large issue. And boy, was he right. It's not one that's easy to discuss. Would 1,100 members of Congress fix the issue of representation Not entirely, I say, but it could get us closer to George Washington's key concern at the convention. In adding more representation in the most representative body, the one that the framers of the convention wanted to be closest to the people and the most frequently elected who can pick up changes in popular opinion the most, by enlarging that, we'd increase the mandate, the moral force that the House has. We'd restore, I believe, some of the authority it has versus the president. We'd increase the variety of voices. We'd help out stranded voters. We may reduce gerrymandering. We may help out third parties. We may make it easier for a person with less resources to get elected, to ignore messages of national funding that are on TV and go door to door with their message. We just might. We just might help reduce party influence this way. We might increase participation in American government and the closeness that Americans have to democracy. I'm under no illusions. This is no silver bullet for democracy. But it's certainly a fever reducer for it. It's one step. It might even be a small one that will need other steps for it to work. I do think it's a worthy one. It has historical precedence, and I think it should be tried. I want to thank you for listening. I'm Bruce Carlson of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Thanks for listening. As a longtime foreign correspondent,
1: I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlaz